welcome. We're glad that you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout Advent, we observe Christ's first coming, His birth, and also look forward to His second coming. Each of our four weeks leading up to Christmas, we will reflect on what Jesus brings, love, peace, joy, and hope, and study these using the New Testament letters to the early church. This will be a fitting conclusion to our year-long journey through the Bible, which we've called Love This Book. We are looking forward to celebrating Advent and would enjoy even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be together, even though we're not all at the same place. Some in the worship center, some in the hubs, many of you at home. But we're still together in spirit, so it's great. Um, let's pray. Father, as we uh, gather this morning, even from a distance, we gather to worship you and to listen to the scriptures. We pray that as we open the scriptures, we'd also open our hearts, that your spirit would give us understanding of your truth and that you'd uh, take those realities and apply them deeply into our lives. Father, our goal is to be a transformed people of God who pursue you and your kingdom with everything we have. And we know to do that well, we need to understand your truth. So we pray that that would happen this morning. We ask this in Christ's name, our King. Amen. You know, we live in polarized times uh, <laughs> around politics, around race and ethnicity, uh, uh, around policy, around, I mean, around the pandemic, even around a mask. Uh, people are divided. And that divisiveness has infiltrated the whole fabric of our lives, um, our workplace, our communities, our neighborhoods. Uh, maybe you've even experienced it uh, in, in families. Uh, some suggest that we are really heading towards kind of a large-scale political violence. I, I don't think that's true. But even if no one ever takes up arms, uh, uh, already we have uh, a civil war going on in our hearts. And what troubles me most about the divisiveness we see in our world is the fact that it's, it's invaded the church, the body of Christ. I've watched it tear apart small groups. I've seen it destroy long-term friendships. I've seen it take its toll even in churches at large. People, believers, get angry. And so at times what we do, we, we distance our, our, ourselves from each other. We, we declare certain subjects or topics off limits. Uh, we seem to have lost the art of civil discourse. We don't have the ability anymore to disagree with one another and walk away and still love one another. Uh, something seems to be amiss. We are in the season of Advent. And 
We are looking at the four themes that traditionally come with Advent, love and peace and hope and joy. And this morning, we're going to focus in on this notion of peace. Now, typically, when we think of Advent peace, we think of it in very personal terms, uh, in terms of personal peace as uh, Advent minimizing that anxiety that all of us at times have in our lives. Or we think it more in a global way. We, we think as a sensation of hostility before for, be, between nations. And, and sometimes we think of it in Old Testament terms as peace as shalom, this universal uh, wholeness that Jesus in the future ultimately is going to bring. Those are all legit ways to think about Advent peace. But there's an aspect of peace that Jesus creates that actually ripples through the people of God. An aspect of peace that impacts how we treat each other and how we relate to God as his people. And that's the peace I want us to focus on this morning. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Uh, just to help you kind of frame it a little bit, there's three sections to this passage. The first section deals with what we were like before Christ. The second section deals with what it was like what Christ did, and the last section looks at the consequences, which are, are, are just radical. So let, let's begin with what we were like before Jesus, okay? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes there, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. But what, what Paul is doing here is he's dividing humanity into two groups. Those who are the people of God, those who are Jews, and everybody else who are Gentiles. And, and he's focusing in what it was like to be a Gentile, to, to not be part of God's people and to not know God. Look what he says. Remember that at that time, Gentiles, you were separate from Christ. You had no hope of a Messiah or somebody coming in from the outside to help. You were excluded from the citizenship. You were part of the in-group, the tribe of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise. God had made this kind of contract with his people to deliver promises to the, you, you didn't benefit from any of that. You were without hope and without God in the world. He's describing what it was like to be lost, to be without God and not part of his people. And at the beginning, he says, hey, I want you to remember what that was like, what that felt like, what that experience was like. Do you ever spend any time thinking about what it was like before Jesus in your life? Now, I know some of you came to Jesus pretty early, so you don't have a good sense of the lostness of being lost. Uh, um, so maybe you can think of times where you've walked away. But for us who came a little later, uh, I think we can look back and, and, and remember. I know I can, and oh, wow. I, re I remember what, what that was like to, to live life with no sense of meaning or, or significance. Um, with no sense that you were connected to anything larger than yourself, uh, no sense that there was actually anything larger going on in life. There was no grand story that you were, were a part of. Uh, 
Remember what it was like not to have any answers to the big questions of where we came from or where we're going or what was the point of life to start with? I, I, I remember what it was like to, to not even have a sense of value. I, I, I mean, I, I would sit down and think, wait, wait, if, if we are simply the result of random chance in this vast universe, then how does a bit of random chance and anomaly, a mistake in a sense, have any importance in the grand scheme of things? And I remember what it was like not to have a sense of belonging, to to have no real deep community. I mean, I have friends, but they seemed to be shallow because there was nothing deeper that held us together. And I think at that point in my life, there, there were two words that, that captured that state for me. And they were the, the words empty and alone. And as an unbeliever, I, I would camouflage those feelings or ignore them or pretend that they were not there. Um, and I would avoid the questions I couldn't answer. But at those moments when I was honest with myself and usually alone with my feelings and my soul, there was, there was this gnawing emptiness, this crushing aloneness. And it was, it was those things that drove me, drove me to Jesus eventually. I think it's really important for us to remember that point, that time of life. And let me explain to you why. One of the things I've discovered as I get older is that life takes its toll on you. And just to be honest with you, I got to tell you, there are moments now in my life where faith doesn't always seem to make that great of sense. Um, At times, it doesn't provide great answers to my doubts and my questions and to believe is at times hard because life beats you up. It doesn't turn out the way you always expected or always the way you hoped, and there are disappointments. And if I am honest with you, there are times when I'm tempted to walk away. And it's at that moment that I think it's most important to remember and be reminded of what life was like before because then you remember, oh yeah, there's no good place to go. (laughs) I'm reminded of that moment um, where Jesus, Jesus had just presented these radical demands of discipleship in John chapter 6. He, he starts talking about him being the bread of life and that you have to eat him to be part of him. And people are walking away. They're going, I don't know what's going on here. This is getting weird. And Jesus turns to Peter and he asks Peter, you know, are you going to walk away too? And, and Peter gives this great answer. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the one who has words of eternal life. There's no good place to go, even when life is hard. So remember, remember what life was like before Christ, because it puts life into perspective. And then you realize that Jesus has changed all that, right? In in, 
uh, verse 13, he begins talking about that. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, remember Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and, and regulations. His, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them. them to God. Um, in this passage, uh, Paul is talking about Jesus creating peace on a horizontal level between Jew and Gentile and also on a vertical level. Uh, let's, let's talk about that horizontal level first. And to really understand what's going on in this passage, you have to understand the depth of the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And you, you can step back and ask, why did the Jews hate the Gentiles and why did the Gentiles hate the Jews? And I think it's pretty simple. The Jews thought they were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people. They thought they were special. And everybody around them thought they thought they were special. That doesn't go over well. And they looked at everybody else as, oh, you're not the chosen ones, right? And the Gentiles looked at the Jews and the Antipathy was mutual. They hated each other. And that was one of the greatest divisions in the ancient world. And it was one of the greatest threats to the early church that that, that division between Jew and Gentile would tear the church apart. And that's why Paul is going after it here. I mean, their attitude towards each other was really really bad. I mean, the Jews believed God had created the Gentiles for one purpose, and that was to fuel the fires of hell. I mean, in their law, it wasn't lawful for a Jew to help a Gentile woman deliver a baby if she was pregnant, because that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. <laughs> if a Jew and a Gentile married each other, the Jews would hold a funeral for the girl or the boy who entered into that marriage with a Gentile, because it was death. I mean, they hated each other. I was uh, in Jerusalem years ago uh, for a, a, a class, and uh, we were touring different spots. We went to the Wailing Wall, and there's a picture of it here. This is the place where, where, where the Jews would go to pray, and it's on the side of the temple. And you can see there's a little grotto that you can go in back there. And I had gone into that grotto, and there's actually an archaeological dig, and you can see the lower part of the wall. And I was looking around, and there's some ancient documents, and... There was a number of Hasidic Jews, you know, the guys who wear the hats and the ringlets and the beards. And one of them, who was young, about 21, 22 years of age, came up to me and started talking to me and explaining things. And we were having this, this great discussion because I had all these questions. And it was really fun. And all of a sudden, an older Hasidic Jew came up to him and started to ream him out, pointing his finger at him, pointing his finger at me. I didn't, it was in Hebrew, so I didn't, I didn't understand any of what was going on, but I did understand. I captured one word, and it was the word goy, 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 goy. And suddenly the young guy, when the guy got done, just turned away and walked off. Didn't say a word to me. And I thought, what the heck just happened? And then I thought about it, and I realized... The young kid thought I was a Jew. <laughs> I don't know why. The older guy realized I wasn't. 
And he was saying, you don't talk to a Gentile. You don't explain things to a Gentile. What's wrong with you? And part of me found that kind of amusing. And part of me found that incredibly infuriating. To have that feeling that you're second class, that you're not even worth being talked to. I mean, this, is, this division was incredibly significant. In fact, the division between the Jew and Gentile was even symbolized in the temple. And Paul is alluding to that in this passage. If we, if we can get a picture up of the temple here. Um, if you look at the temple, the center part was the Holy of Holies. That's the tall place in there, the temple proper. And then on that same level were three courts. The, the court of the priests, the court uh, of Israel, and the court of the, the women. And if you were Jewish and you fit into those categories, you could go there. And then you'd go down about five steps um, and you'd encounter that wall that is around the whole thing. And then you'd come out through that wall and down and you'd see that, that wall around the outside. Outside of that wall is known as the court of the Gentiles. And uh, if you were a Gentile, you could not go any further into the, the temple area than that wall. And this was a serious thing. They, they, they posted warnings, no trespassing signs. Uh, and they, archaeologists have found, found some of these warnings. But let me read to you what the warning said. It said, no foreigners may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for their ensuing death. That wall became a symbol, a metaphor for how the Gentiles were treated and how they were seen. They were seen as foreigners and uh, separated aliens, second class, no hope, separated from God and his people. And you know, the, the, the Jews saw the Gentiles as enemies. Now, can I step back just for a minute just to make an observation and a bit of application? I, 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 the, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, were given a mission. They, they were chosen as God's people not simply to be the recipients of his special love, but they were chosen as God's people to, to be a light to the rest of the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. They, they were chosen as a people for a task to reach the world. And the problem is, is they had forgotten, lost that sense of vision, that sense of mission. And, and their relationship with God simply became about them and preserving their identity. So rather than seeing the Gentiles as the mission and the prize made him into the enemy. Now look, sometimes the same thing happens to us. I, I mean, in a sense, from a biblical perspective, there is only really one way to divide the world, and it's between those who believe and those who do not believe yet, Right? But when we, need, we make that distinction, we need to be very careful not to make the same error the Jews did. 
Being in Christ does not make us better, does not make us more superior, does not make us even more loved. But happen, what happens in, in the church, we sometimes see those of us inside as us, our friends, and we begin to see those outside as them. And suddenly we begin to mark them as the enemy. Folks, people outside the church are not the enemy. They're the prize. We are part of a cosmic battle. The prize is the lives and the minds of the lost. But sometimes rather than seeing them as the prize, we see them as the adversary. But folks, they're not the adversary. The adversary is Satan, not those who do not believe. Those who do not believe are simply blinded by the enemy. And we hurt ourselves and our cause when we make them the bad guys. Say, well, Nick, but, well, but we don't like the way we live. They live. We don't like the, what they value. We don't like how they behave. We don't like their. Po- I don't. We don't. We, we, and we begin to point the figure a, a, at them, and we we become pretty judgmental. And we forget that Paul tells us in in First Corinthians that we're supposed to judge those inside the church, not judge those outside the church. I mean, those people outside the church are just doing exactly what we did right before Christ. We didn't know God. We didn't know his people. We weren't part of his promises. There was no meaning. They're just trying to find happiness and meaning and, and living out how they understand the world that to them makes no sense. And what we want to do is hold them up to our standards and say, well, you, you don't live like we think you should live. No, they're living exactly like we did before we knew Jesus And what happens is rather than seeing us as the community that loves them, that wants them to know Jesus is reaching out to them, they see us as the community that judges them. Our obligation is to see them as the prize. Well, back to the text. So what Paul is saying is there's this wall of hostility, and when Jesus comes, he obliterates that wall. He destroys it. He tears it down. It's kind of like watching one of those buildings on television that implode and crumble. That's what he does. He, he, He gets rid of the wall between Jew and Gentile and destroys the system that separated the two. And and the text says that out of the two, he creates, this great phrase, a new humanity. Verse 16 says his purpose was to create in himself, in himself, one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentile, making peace. Now, this is fascinating. He does that. He he, he destroys the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile first and kind of encircles them both in this new humanity, this this new community in him. And then he reconciles both together to God. And that's the, the vertical piece. 
Reconcile means to restore relationship, and it says in the text that he gives us access. And the word he uses there for access is a word that, that describes being allowed to come into the presence of royalty. So together, Jew and Gentile are the new humanity, and they're giving access to, to, to God, who is now their king. Now, Paul is writing this because he's going after the division that is creeping into the church and his point is that the church is called to be this new community where there are no walls, no barriers between us and them, no distinctions, there's differences, but no distinctions of value, no segregation, no discrimination. He gets very explicit with this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew or Gentile, that's gone, neither slave or free, <laughs> that doesn't matter, male nor female, no distinction on gender, for you are all one in Christ. Because that's what the church is called to be. Um, you know, there are all kinds of us and them distinctions in the world. And the struggle is, is that they tend to creep into the church, right? Distinction around gender, male and female. Distinction around economics. We have the rich and the poor and the in-between. Distinction around politics. We have Democrats and Republicans. The conservatives, the liberals, the right, the left, the progressives, the far right, whatever. Distinctions around race. Black, white, yellow, brown, or whatever color will do. Around heritage and nationality, you know, of Italians and the English and the Polish and the Scandinavian social class, some upper class, your lower class, and education, we're, we're college educated, we're, we're not educated, we're high, whatever. And, and, and those get reflected in churches. We have black churches, and we have white churches, and we have Hispanic churches, and we have Korean churches, and then Japanese churches, and Chinese churches. We each want to be with us, and everybody else is kind of them. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't get it. Christ is the wall destroyer. He broke those down. That's what it means to say that he made peace. The church is called to be the place, the new humanity. And we are to model that to the world. The church is called to be a multiracial, multiethnic, multi-community, multi multicultural community made up of rich and poor, black and white and brown and male and female, white collar, blue collar, poor, educate. Those distinctions are irrelevant. We're together because we are one in Christ. And folks, that's where we're heading, right? At the end, before Jesus, his church is together and it's of every tribe and every nation and every language and every race. Worshiping together. And yet when we look at the church in America, well, Martin Luther King said it was the most segregated time of the week. The 11 o'clock hour was the most segregated time of the week in America. He was right. Now, that's changing. Let me give you some statistics. While about 8 in 10 American congregants still attend services at a place where a single racial or ethnic group comprises at least 80% of the congregation. One in five now worship in a congregation where no single racial or ethnic group predominates in such a way. 
And that figure's gone up from 15% in 1998 to over 20% now. Uh, 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 let's bring it a little closer to home. This is, this is a challenge for us at Waterstone. <laughs> um, we live in a far more diverse neighborhood than you may think. I, I was shocked to discover this when we did some demographics a few years ago. Within five miles of Waterstone demographically, 18% of the population are non-white, almost one in five. That is not true of the demographic inside Waterstone. If you want to see what that is like in reality, uh, go stand at the entrance to Walmart, which you get a great exposure to our community and mark the people who go in. And then come stand, and you could do this more pre-COVID or post-COVID, and watch who comes into Waterstone. They don't match well. Uh, let me be honest with you folks. We, we are a very white, very educated, very rich congregation. And I'm saying that because I take responsibility for it. I led this place for 35 years. And people would say, you know, Nick, this place isn't very diverse. And I said, well, our neighborhood's not very diverse. What do you expect? Baloney, it's, it's incredibly diverse. We're not diverse inside as much as the community is outside because... We're just not very welcoming to people of color and people who are different than us. You say, oh, that's not true. Yes, it is true. I was talking with a woman from our church who is in a multi-ethnic marriage. And she was telling me, and she was just heartbroken. She said, my husband will not come to church at Waterstone anymore. And I said, why? And she said, because he doesn't feel welcome. He doesn't feel treated well. And I said, you got to be kidding. Be because of his ethnicity? And she goes, yeah. We're blind to it. I'm blind to it. And we're called to something better. We have to figure out how. You cannot make people of diversity come, but you can doggone work your butt off at being welcoming and to deal with the division in the heart. Because if there's a division in your heart, if it's even subtle, it's going to come out in your behavior. I know uh, I'm really excited as Larry is forming new objectives and goals and what they're going to really focus on. I know that, that becoming uh, uh, reconciled as a, a kingdom community and more racially diverse and culturally diverse is one of their top priorities, and they're trying to figure that out and trying to set goals around that, and I, I just want to give them kudos. I think that's really important. Okay, back to the text. Last section, he talks about the results He's created this new humanity, this new community who's now been reconciled to God. And then he says, consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him 
you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is using three images and he, he mixes them up a little bit, but he's using them to communicate our new status in this new, new community. And the very first thing he says is that we, we are fellow citizens. In other words, we're part of this new kingdom and we have a new a, a king and thus we have a new allegiance. And uh, the connection that we have with each other in this new community is not based on our, 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 our common affinity to each other, but is based on our common allegiance to Jesus. Now, when you begin to wrestle with this, the first thing you have to realize that our high allegiance, our highest allegiance in life is to Jesus as our king. And for American Christians in the United States, we have to face the fact that this country and this political system and the America is not our true home. Right? He said we're foreigners. And that means we're aliens to any earthly nation. And he's implying, look, your relationship to Jesus is to be all-consuming. I mean, for us, faith is not a hobby and the church is not a social club. Our Savior is not a political party or a political leader. Our hope and loyalty is to Jesus and that's the foundation of our identity and that's the citizenship that matters for all time. And, and, and we can love our country, and I think the United States is a great place. I'm glad I live here, uh, and I want to be patriotic. But it pales, in total com- pales totally in comparison to allegiance to Jesus. Because my citizenship, your citizenship is in heaven. We're part of his kingdom. Now, typically... The depth of my relationship with someone is based on how we communicate or our common interests or our common activities or a common place in life or our affinity. We, we out with people who are just like us. But in the new community, we're called to transcend that, right? In fact, our relational connection between each other on that level doesn't really matter because ultimately what matters is our connection to Jesus. And our connection to Jesus, our allegiance to him transcends everything else. And, and I think the fact that we've missed this is become part of the reason for our divisions in the church. We think our unity is to be based on our shared perspectives and convictions and shared theology and uh, our, our shared political position or cultural background or our economics. And that's not true at all. Our unity is not based on any of that. I mean, there's some doctrinal things that, a few doctrinal things that put us in relationship with Jesus. So ultimately, our our unity is based on our allegiance to Him. And if we grab a hold of that, then we don't, we we can disagree and wrestle and discuss and, and still love each other because we love each other because of Jesus. I don't haven't done this well all my life, but one one relationship I've done it well. I have a 30 plus year relationship with Jim. (laughs) Jim is older than me. We're from different backgrounds, different educational experiences. 
Uh, um, and on a lot of things, we can disagree <laughs> on more, especially on politics. Uh, you would think we'd avoid the subject. We don't. We talk about it. I give him a hard time for how he votes. He gives me a hard time for how I vote. We try to listen to each other respectively. On occasion, it gets passionate. We argue about things. We, we, <laughs> we at times have yelled at each other. But our affinity or a common perspective or a common conviction about a political ideology uh, is not the basis of our relationship. I need Jim in my life to speak into my thinking, and he needs me. And I like to think that over time I've moved him a bit. And he likes to think over time he's moved me a bit. And probably both of us are, are right but that's never gotten in the way of our relationship because it's based on a common love of Jesus as king. And we can fight like cats and dogs and at the end hug each other and love each other. If we weren't living in the midst of uh, COVID, I would tell you Democrats to go find a brother or sister who is a Republican and give them a hug. And I would tell you Republicans to go find a brother or sister who is a Democrat, and there's a lot of them, and give them a hug. And if you cannot imagine yourself doing that, or you don't know anyone who would fit the other category, then might I suggest something is amiss in your faith? Anyway, so we're citizens. Second metaphor is that we are now members of this household. Now, when we think of household, we think of family, and we think the linkage is DNA. But the Greek word here is oikos, and oikos speaks to a household, people who live together. So you'd have mother, father, kids, uh, extended family, but you'd have servants and you'd have concubines and you'd have sojourners and people who lived in the same co compound. And the notion of the household is, is that a household does life together. And what Paul is saying here is now that you're part of the new community, uh, you have to do life together. You, you know, we, because we've been impacted so much by the uh, um, enlightenment, we cast our relationship with Jesus in very personal and private terms. It's me and Jesus. And here's the truth, folks. You can look at, at all the, the uh, um, if anyone, passages in the Gospels, and you can understand that you're invited into a relationship with Jesus often on an individual level. But then when you get to the epistles, you discover that even though you're invited in individually, you're called to live out that relationship in community. And the, the New Testament knows nothing of a me and Jesus kind of faith. It's a me and Jesus' body kind of faith. And we are put into this household, and the calling of the household is that now you do life together. You don't go through life alone. 
And it means we're to be interweaved into each other's lives and walk through the good times and the hard times through thick and thin to be integrated into each other's joys and struggles and sorrows. Because why? We, because we do life together. I know this is hard in COVID, but it's, it's still possible. Barb and I haven't been in a small group, I think, over 15 years now. And, and that small group has done life with Barb and me and, and stuck with us through thick and thin. And my wife, the last two years, has been in and out of hospital and rehab and just been one thing after another. And, and those guys have been there all the time. They've been praying for us. They, they have sent us cards. They, they give us meals. Uh, they, they, one of them flew out to Wisconsin when we were stuck in a hospital in Wisconsin. Uh, um, why? Because we do life together. Back in October, I had my knee replaced, and, and you know what they what they did? They started bringing us meals, and I thought, guys, stop! You know this isn't fair. You guys should kick us out of your group. <laughs> we're we're too much for anybody. And they said, oh no 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 no. Why? Because it's a household. You do life together. Good times, bad times, hard times. Last thing. He says um, that we are also God's temple. Look at verse 20, built on the foundation of the, uh, the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is a great image. The temple, the temple was built out of individual stones, but they, they were kind of interlocking. They built on each other, and it's this picture of interdependence. A single, a single stone by itself wasn't good for anything, but it was joined together. And I think in some mystical way, we, we are joined together in more deep ways than we can imagine in the body of Christ. It's not just an external connection. We're, we're weaved together. Um, and, and you know what's really important? Why was the temple so important to the people? Because the temple was the place where God dwelt. And, and that's what this text says. In, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, now here's how we think, right? American individuals, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that's not New Testament theology. Go to 1 Corinthians 3 where we're told we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is the body. Yeah, the Holy Spirit comes into us. But the very first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes into us, he's, 1 Corinthians 12, he places us in the church. And the temple is not me, not you, it's us. So, when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit earlier in Ephesians, it's not individually being filled, it's corporately being, as his church be filled with the Spirit. When you get to chapter 6 and talks about the armor of God, we think, oh, I'm going to put on the armor of God. No, you're not. The church puts on the armor of God. It's all corporate. We need to think differently. We are interweaved together. You cannot do the Christian life on your own. You have to do it together in the midst of his community because you're the new humanity. He's taken down the dividing wall. Wow. You can't do it on your own. But together, we become the habitation of God, the place where God's Spirit lives. 
That means together we become the presence of God in this world. When our crazy, divisive, polarized world looks at the church, they're supposed to see this united church, a group of, uh, of people whose distinguishing mark is that they love one another no matter their color or nationality or gender or ethnicity. They are to look at the church and they are to see Jesus. That's how God has set it up. So if someone says, what, what is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? Is he loving? Is he good? Is he just? Is he compassionate? Is he understanding? Is he generous? Does he comfort the oppressed? Does he, he confront the oppressor? All they have to do is look at the church to get the answer. Let us be that kind of church. Advent is to remind us that we are to be that kind of church. When I end this morning uh, by us sharing in communion together, the Lord's Supper. Um, <laughs> I, I, I laugh at these. I used to make fun of these because I think they're so ironic. <laughs> the Lord's Supper is this thing we're to do together. I mean, when the New Testament church did it, they would gather for a meal and there would be one loaf that represented the body of Christ and everybody would partake of that loaf and was a way of manifesting their unity. But it's COVID, so we each have our individual little cups and our individual little wafers. But we're going to do it all together, all right? We're going to take it all together at one time eat the bread and drink the cup. And as we do, we're to be reminded that we are connected. So take your cup. Take out the wafer. Listen to the words of Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus who is our King. To whom we give our loyalty and our allegiance. Father, this morning as we marked our unity by celebrating Lord's Supper together, partaking of your blood and your body, we are reminded that we are one.
Father, honestly, sometimes we don't live that out very well. But we want to. We want Waterstone just to be a great model, a great habitation of God so that when people look at us, they see the richness of your body, the diversity, the love, the passion for justice and generosity and the compassion. Father, make us that kind of church because you've made us that kind of people. Fill us together with your spirit, Lord, and together transform us into the people of God. Amen.